Lord Jesus, as we've just had a chance to sing, as we've heard read from your word, and as we have prayed together this morning, you are the light of the world. You are the light that shines in the darkness. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us better see your light this morning. Help us better see you as the light. Help us better see the light. And Lord, please cause our experience of you to transform us in the way that it should. Please, Lord, if there's anyone in here this morning who still remains in the darkness, who lives in the darkness, who has yet to be saved by the darkness from your light, by your light, please, Lord, save them this morning. Be pleased to cause them to step into the light of you this morning. And Lord, for all of those who already are in the light, we ask that you would be pleased to increase our love for it, increase our love for you, cause us to want you more, that you might be glorified in that desire and everything that those desires produce in us. And cause us, Lord, to be people who shine your light every minute of every day, shining you to this world that you have have kept us in for that very purpose. Lord, please cause us to be the best shiners of your light possible and to love your light the most possible. All these things, Lord, we pray for your glory. And we pray also knowing that these are all best for us. So please do them for our sake. Do them out of your love for us, we pray. Help, Lord, me during this time to to preach your word effectively, to say only that which is true, only that which is best. Help us, Lord, to worship you by not only listening attentively, but by responding to your word the way that your word deserves to be responded to with obedience and with the desire to change and bring our lives into conformity with it. Cause that to be the exact result of this time, that you might not only be glorified in, uh, in, this, in this moment of worship as we preach and listen, but that you might be glorified in the effect, the result this has on our life. Again, Lord, we pray these things for your glory and trust in your spirit to accomplish it. We know it's only by your grace and power that any of these things happen, and we trust that it's your will, so we ask, we ask for these things accordingly. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning. Light is an amazing thing. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but life is, or sorry, light is so essential to our lives as we know it, right? It's probably one of those things that is so essential to life that we probably take it for granted. But imagine if we were in here right now and we turned all the lights off. That probably wouldn't be that big of a deal because we have windows and the sun shining through. But imagine if, if there was no sun, if the sun wasn't shining. And imagine if, if there were no stars in the sky, no moon either, if there were no source of light in the world at all. Our lives, or at least our lives as we know them today, would not be possible. Light, this phenomena, this physical phenomena that we call light, is absolutely essential to seeing and acting and relating properly to the world around us. Our lives as we know it would not be possible without light. Light is certainly an amazing phenomena physically, but I would argue that it's an equally amazing, if not an even more amazing phenomena as a spiritual metaphor. Life is a powerful spiritual metaphor. It's actually one that's used repeatedly throughout Scripture. If you read through the Bible, you've probably seen light referred to multiple times in a metaphorical sense. Uh, If I recall correctly, one scholar I read actually said that light is one of the most complex, he might have actually argued that it's the most complex metaphor in Scripture. In other words, it it can refer to so many different things. It can mean so many different things. It's certainly a complex and powerful spiritual metaphor for us. 
But today, we're going to talk about light in the spiritual sense, in the metaphorical sense, in which light is a person. Light is a person. And not just a person, but a person who actually shines through other people. A person who shines through other people. Now, Christians, they have a, Christians have a, a peculiar relationship to this light, if you will, uh, especially in, in contrast to non-Christians. Um, Paul actually commands us in Ephesians chapter 5 to, quote, walk as children of light. And so it should come as no surprise to you what the main point of the sermon is today. Uh, it focuses on our relationship to the light as Christians. Uh, and the main point of the sermon is that Christians are supposed to be light lovers and light shiners. Christians are light lovers and light shiners. And this is especially evident in contrast to non-Christians. When we look at Christians compared to the world in darkness, we find that those who do not know Christ actually oppose the light as a, uh, in contrast to loving it and shining it. So today we're going to look at three points. We're going to look at number one, loving the light. Number two, opposing the light. And number three, shining the light. And my hope for us this morning is really simple. I hope that when we walk out of here today, we will be better lovers of the light and better shiners of the light. That's my hope for us. That's my prayer for us. I hope that God will do that for us today, not only by showing us what it looks like to love the light and and to shine the light, but by his grace, I want us to experience the light of Christ again this morning, to experience it afresh this morning, because it's experiencing the light that transforms us into people that love the light and that shine the light the way that we're called to So let's look at the first point this morning, loving the light. We're at the very end of Acts 13. As Sarah and I were discussing this passage last night, uh, she commented that it's a long passage, uh, which it is. There's 52 verses. Uh, And I was going to joke with you about how we would read through the whole chapter just to get good context before. um, But I won't do that. Hopefully you wouldn't mind if we read through the whole chapter anyway. Uh, It's always good to hear God's word read. Um, But if you remember at the beginning of the chapter, Acts 13 started with Paul and Barnabas being set apart for the work of missions. They're called by the Holy Spirit to go out to reach the nations with the gospel, and the church in Antioch sends them out on their very first missionary journey. Their first stop was at the island of Cyprus. That's where they ran into the magician Bar-Jesus, had that incredible encounter with him. And then from Cyprus, they sailed northwest up to Perga, and then from there, they traveled north to Antioch in Pisidia, which is in modern-day Turkey. And then last week, we saw that when they entered the synagogue, they received an offer to share a word of encouragement with the people. And we learned that if anyone ever offers you to share a word of encouragement, you always say yes, right? And then you share the gospel. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did. They, they received this offer to share a word, and they stand up, and they proclaim Christ. Specifically, they talk about the mercy of God to Israel, how God chose their fathers, how he made them a great people, how he led them out of Egypt, how he provided for them in the wilderness and gave them a land and gave them judges and gave them a king. He's highlighting the mercy of God. And then he talks about God's faithfulness. He talks about how God is faithful to his promise of salvation, to send them a savior, to send them Christ, an offspring of David, who God raised from the dead. And then they say that forgiveness and freedom from sin is offered to all who believe. They share the offer of forgiveness and salvation with these people, and at the same time, they share a warning that if you do not believe, if you do not receive this word and trust alone in Christ, you will perish. There's the offer of forgiveness, and there's the warning of judgment if they reject it. And then we pick up today in our passage in verse 42. We, we now get to see the aftermath of this sermon that they've, uh, 
preached, if you will. Verse 42 says, As they went out, as Paul and Barnabas went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Now, a few translations, instead of saying that they begged, it says that they invited them to speak again. It could just mean that they invited or perhaps that they were actually urging them, begging for them to come back. But regardless, we see that the people's interest is piqued, that they want to hear more of this. They either want to hear Paul and Barnabas share it again, or they want additional information. They want to hear further about the things that they said. In verse 43, it says, After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, that is, Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So some of them were not content to wait until the next Sabbath to hear more about what Paul and Barnabas said. They desired more now. They couldn't wait. And so they followed after Paul and Barnabas. They're drawn to the light that they had just heard proclaimed by them. The light has a, an attractional force to them. It draws them in. It says that Paul and Barnabas, that they urged them to continue in God's grace. Certainly that implies that these people had experienced God's grace. Perhaps they experienced it in the same sense in which Old Testament believers came to experience God's grace, but I think it's more likely they actually came to experience God's grace in the sense that they were converts to Christianity, that they heard Christ proclaim and they had repented and believed in him. And now the apostles are encouraging them to continue in that. These are people who had accepted the offer of forgiveness. They had come to the light, and they loved the light. They loved it so much that they wanted more of it. This message of mercy, of God's faithfulness, of his offer to be forgiven of sin and released from the bondage of sin, they've tasted this light, and they love it. They want more. Light is sweet to those in darkness, is it not? Have you ever had a a long night, a sleepless night, maybe where you're tossed around in bed, you can't fall asleep, or you've been tormented by bad dreams, and you keep looking at the clock, and it's still nighttime, and you just can't wait for the sun to come up. You can't wait for the sun to rise, because then the night's over, and you can be free from this this mess of, of a night that it's been. Or maybe if you've been inside an office all day, maybe like, uh, maybe like, if you relate to, to my experience sometimes, you've been inside all day and you just step outside for whatever reason, you get to stand in the light and just getting to stand there and to feel, feel the sun, to, to, to stand in, in the light uh, and, and to feel it on your skin is, um, it's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, when you're at the beach or you're on a hiking trail and you, you get to stand in the sun, to get to experience that, uh, to, to feel the warm light shining on you, it's, it, it's beautiful. We love the light. And the principle that I want us to get from this first point is that love wants more. Love wants more. If you truly love something, then you will want more of it. Right, this isn't a complicated, uh, complicated point to make. Uh, think of your favorite dessert. What is your favorite dessert? What is it for you that when you have, it's super hard for you to exercise self-control and not have a second helping? Whatever that is, if, if, you delight, if, if you delight in it and enjoy it and you want more, it's hard for you to not have more of it because you love it and enjoy it so much. Or how about when you go on vacation? Do you ever go on vacation and feel sad when you have to leave? Do you ever want to already plan the next time to come back? To be trying to convince yourself in, in your mind, oh, it won't be that long before we'll get to go on this trip again. You so love that, that peace or that beautiful place or the time you get with your family that you want more of that. You want more of that. You're sad to leave. Or maybe, what is it that distracts you during the day? 
when you're working or when you're in school or whatever it is you do, what is it that you find your mind watering to? Maybe a hobby? Maybe it's your family. Maybe you just want to spend more time with your wife and your kids and you're watching the clock and you can't wait to get off for the day so that you can go home and be with them and spend time with them. Whatever it is for you, love wants more. We want more of the things we love. We want more of the people that we love. So here's the question for you. Maybe you've already been anticipating this. Do you want more of Jesus? Do you want more of Jesus like that? See, wanting means that you can't be okay waiting until next Sunday to hear another sermon. It means that you're going to be seeking him fervently when you go home today and throughout the week. That you're going to be devouring books. That you're going to be pursuing him through the word. That it's going to be hard for people to pull you out of prayer that you're constantly going to be meditating on his word, that you're going to be eager to get together with other believers. You want other believers in your life because you want to hear them speak the word to you. You want to experience the work of God in their life. You're hungry. You're listening to sermons and podcasts and lectures. You can't get enough. You're following after Paul and Barnabas. You want more of Christ. You want more of the light. First Peter 2 Peter says this in verses 2 through 3. He says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We want to long for more of Jesus. We want to long for his word. We want to crave it, as the NIV says. We've talked about before, this is the one area in life where it is okay to be gluttonous. Don't be content Don't be satisfied with the amount of light that you have. Don't be satisfied with what you know of Christ. Want more of him. Don't be content. Love wants more. I would argue that if you don't want more, then you probably don't love much. You probably don't love Christ much if you don't want more of him. So Christians love the light. They want more of the light. What if that's not you? What should you do? I would take the advice that Peter gives in 1 Peter. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. What's the solution for you if you don't have this hunger? It's to follow after Paul and Barnabas anyway. Just like the Jews and the Gentile converts did, don't wait until next Sunday to hear another sermon and hope that that's going to increase your hunger for the light. Do all those things we just talked about. Seek him, experience the light. And when you do, if you truly experience the light, you will hunger for him more. I would argue that it's impossible to truly experience the light of Christ and to not want him more. You will want more of him. And I hope that even this morning you'll have a chance to experience him as you hear him proclaim through his word. Verse 44, it says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So others apparently hear about this message that Paul and Barnabas are communicating, and they're interested too. And when it says the whole city gather, that's, that might be hyperbolic language. But as my dad mentioned today in the prayer furnace, it was likely that the city was mostly Gentiles. And so when it says the whole city gather, there were probably a large crowd of Gentiles there. But what I want you to notice next in this passage is that not, not everyone responds to this message of light like the Jews and Gentile converts did uh, that we just saw. Some people, in fact, actually oppose the light. Let's look at how the Jews respond. They, when they heard this message being proclaimed, they say, oh, great, look at this. All the Gentiles are here. I'm so glad they have a chance to hear the word of God. That's not their response. Let's look at the second point, opposing the light. Verse 45, 
we read that when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. When it says the Jews, it's not obviously not referring to all of the Jews because there were some Jews who just followed after Paul and Barnabas and were hungry for more. When it's referring to the Jews here, it's, it's likely referring to those Jews specifically who represented official Judaism. In other words, the official stance of Jews and of the religious leaders was one of opposition to this message. It says that they were filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. When what? When, quote, they saw the crowds. When they saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Merriam-Webster defines the word jealous like this. It says, quote, feeling or showing an unhappy or angry desire to have what someone else has. In other words, jealousy is wanting what someone else has and not being happy until you get it, right? What was it that Paul and Barnabas had that the Jews wanted? Well, it seems like they wanted their popularity, they wanted the attention that they were getting from all of these Gentiles. Maybe this is attention that the Jews never got, but they wanted or they felt like they deserved. Does this ever happen for us as Christians? One commentator I read talked about how sad it is when Christians will sometimes experience feelings of jealousy or envy over other successful ministries, over larger churches or preachers that attract audiences, crowds, can feel jealousy for wrong reasons for reasons of self-glory, wanting that for ourselves. If you want more people here, that might be a good thing to, to desire. But ask yourself, why do you want more people here? Is it so that you can say, I'm part of a successful ministry? I've contributed to, to the growth of a church that's now large, that has a lot of people? Do you want it for yourself? Or do you want it for God's glory? It's easy to have a sinful desire for popularity and for attention. And the passage says here that the Jews were filled with this type of jealousy. The word filled, it's a, it communicates a, a disgusting image. It's like being filled with a, with a glass of expired milk, something vile to drink. They're filled all the way to the brim with this jealousy. Shakespeare called jealousy the green-eyed monster, right? It's a beastly, monstrous sin. Verse 45 says that they were not only filled with jealousy, but that they then began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So the text, it reveals not only their feeling, but also their behavior, what they were doing. It says that they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. They're trying to refute his teaching. They're trying to contradict what he's saying, maybe out of jealousy, but maybe also because they just believed that what he was saying was heretical. They believed that Paul was very wrong. Why do they think that? Well, probably for the same reason that Paul said the Jews in Jerusalem killed Christ. We heard last week from verse 27. This is Paul speaking of the Jews in Jerusalem. He said those Jews did not recognize him, that's Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets. In other words, in their ignorance, these Jews are hearing this message about Jesus being the Messiah who came. They're hearing about Jesus' claims, which implied his own divinity. They're hearing about this fact that this Messiah was actually killed, executed, and then supposedly rose from the dead. And they hear it as blasphemy. They understood what Paul was saying, but they rejected it in light of their ignorant beliefs. The tragic irony, and this happens today as well, is that in their attempt to defend what they thought the truth was, they had actually become heretics themselves. Right? They were the ones in error. And it's the same thing today. You know, if, someone, if someone opposes Christianity because they believe that it's morally wrong to condemn homosexuality, or someone 
is someone opposes Christianity because of the biblical accounts of creation or of the supernatural are deemed unscientific or anti-scientific today. People who oppose Christianity on those bases believe that they're defending the truth, that they're defending goodness. We always believe we're defending the truth. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe it, right? We wouldn't believe something if we didn't think that it was true. But just then, as it is for us today, their ignorance of, tr- of the truth, of who Jesus really was, led them to oppose the light fiercely. That's why, by the way, just as a side, it's so important in evangelism to really understand what people believe. Right? We want to we understand what beliefs keep this person from trusting in Christ, from seeing him as the Lord and Savior that he is, and we want to deal with those specifically. We want to dispel their error and shine light into the darkness. In verse 45, it says that they reviled Paul. That's the same word that can be translated blaspheme. Perhaps they're blaspheming Paul's teaching, but as the NIV says, it could also be understood that they're heaping abuse on Paul. So they're dragging his reputation through the mud. They're slandering him. They're attacking him. And then the very thing that Paul just warned about the previous Sabbath, he took a prophecy from the book of Habakkuk, and he used it to warn them. He said in verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Verse 41, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. The very thing Paul warned them about, saying, if someone comes to you and tells you this and you don't believe it, beware lest you scoff and perish. They scoff and their destiny is to perish. Instead of loving the light, like the Christians did, like those Jews and Gentile converts who followed after Paul, these Jews opposed the light. Why? They were blind to the truth, ultimately. Not only was the green-eyed monster of jealousy rearing its ugly head, but it looks like in this passage they're being devoured by the blind-eyed monster of ignorance. See, as Christians, we, may not, we might not oppose the light the same way that they do. I think very few of us would probably stand up and try to verbally contradict the teachings of the gospel. But we all know that we oppose God's word with our own lives. So the application question that I would want to ask you in light of these verses is, when does ignorance lead you to oppose the light of the gospel? Maybe it seems like a tough question, but it happens all the time. And I think it happens oftentimes without us noticing that it's happening. Think about this for a second. When you see all of the things that you're supposed to do as a Christian, and you say, I know I'm supposed to do these things, but I just, I really don't want to, right? Do I have to show hospitality to people? Do I have to, do I have, to have other people in my lives? Do I really have to participate in ministry? Do I have to pray? Do I have to pray on my own? Do I have to show up for the Lord's Day and join the church for prayer? Do I have to do these things? Right? When, that's, when those are the questions that we're asking or when that's our experience, that reveals an ignorance of Christ in us. Why do I say that? Because if we were truly seeing Jesus clearly, if we understood him as he is, if we understood the gospel as it is, the eyes of our heart saw the light, we would want to do those things. When we don't want to do those things, it means that we're lacking knowledge. We're ignorant, in a sense. The hymn writer William Cowper put it well. He said, quote, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. If we still feel like a slave, if we still feel like it's duty that's carrying us along, duty is not a wrong thing to feel, but if we don't have the desire to do what God commands us to do, It means that we don't see Christ very clearly. 
It means that we're ignorant of him in a sense. So the warning for you is this. If you find yourself opposing the light, beware of the blind-eyed monster of ignorance. You may not be seeing Jesus clearly. So this second point, I hope that it's obvious to you that Christians are not the ones who oppose the light. Non-Christians, those in darkness, in this case the Jews, those who are blind, they're the ones who oppose the light, whereas Christians, in contrast, are the ones who love the light. But the story doesn't end there. There's more to the Christian's relationship to light in this passage than simply a love for it. Let's move on to the third point, point number three, shining the light. Now, if you're sitting here and you're surprised that we're done with the second point already, I can assure you that the third point is longer. Uh, There's more to this passage that fits into the third point. Um, And so uh, I would say don't get your hopes up, but hopefully you're not hoping that the sermon's going to end right now anyway. Um, But third point, here we go, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, quote, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, being spoken first to the Jews. In other words, it's appropriate or fitting that the Messiah who fulfilled all of the promises to Israel would be announced first to Israel. However, he continues on, saying that, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Man, what words those must have been for them to hear. Can you imagine someone saying that to you? Saying that you've judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. And you think that the Jews did that knowingly? You think when they were opposing Paul and Barnabas that they were saying in their minds, I'm judging myself unworthy of eternal life. I'm going to condemn myself. Of course not. But the implication is that by thrusting Jesus aside, by rejecting the only hope, the only path of salvation, they were choosing eternal damnation. They were condemning themselves. Their actions were self-condemning, just as they are for all who hear the gospel today and reject the gospel today. Whether they know it or not, they are judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. Imagine if there was a, a major power outage here in San Jose, and the city gathered at the community center to give out resources to distribute aid to everyone, and you were one of the first people in line. Maybe you were the first person in line, and they offer you a number of different resources, one of which is a flashlight, because with no power, it's going to be very dark here. And they're offering you flashlights. They're recommending that you take it, but you refuse to accept it. You refuse to offer their, their free provision of aid to you. By rejecting those flashlights, you are essentially condemning yourself to walk and to live in darkness. You're choosing it, even if that's not explicitly what you're thinking when you're doing it. That's what the Jews did here. They rejected the light, and Paul and Barnabas, in response, say, quote, we are turning to the Gentiles. Given the response of the Jews, they decide that they're going to turn their ministry directly to the Gentiles, those who are non-Jews. This doesn't mean that Paul and Barnabas are going to abandon their ministry to the Jews. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to see that when Paul goes into Iconium, that's the next city you visit, he goes into the synagogue again, and he preaches to Jews and Gentiles there. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, he's going to continue to engage the Jews, and he's going to continue to go to synagogues. But there will also be a focus on directly engaging non-Jews, perhaps especially so when the Jews thrust aside the message of life that they're offering. And so going back to the example I had given of the power outage, if you're first in line and you reject the aid that the city's offering, if you, if you reject their recommendation to take a flashlight, the Gentiles or the non-Jews here would be like the next neighbors in line. 
They're next in line. The city was planning for them to receive flashlights as well. But the city was distributing flashlights to those who were at the front of the line first. And since you were at the front of the line and rejected their help, they're free to move on now to the next person in line, which would be, in this analogy, the Gentiles and non-Jews. The Jews were appropriate, appropriately first in line to receive the light of Christ. But in Antioch and Pisidia, the city where they're at, they rejected the gospel. And so Paul and Barnabas turn to the next people in line. They turn to the Gentiles. As one commentator said, it's important to recognize that the Jewish rejection of the gospel was not the cause for them turning to the Gentiles. It was the occasion for them turning to the Gentiles. And there's a big difference between those two. right? It's not the cause of the gospel going to the Gentiles because the light was always supposed to go to the Gentiles. That was prophesied before Christ even came and before the Jews even rejected the gospel message. Paul actually quotes this prophecy in verse 47. You look at the text with me. He says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, quote, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you know what passage he's quoting from there? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 49, written hundreds of years before Christ was even born. I know we don't normally do this, but uh, I appreciate if you could go and turn your Bibles there to Isaiah chapter 49. I want us to look at the context of that passage together because this prophecy is very important to the text of our sermon today. In Isaiah, there's four servant songs. There's songs about this person that Isaiah refers to as a servant of the Lord. And the song that Paul is quoting from here is the second of these four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And as we read through the context of this quote, I just want you to ask yourself, who is this person? This noble title of the servant of the Lord. Who does this title belong to? Who is Paul referring to here? Isaiah 49, starting in verse 1. This is the servant of the Lord speaking. He says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me, that's the servant of the Lord, from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. In other words, this person is a real man. He's born of a woman. Verse 2. God made my mouth like a sharp sword. His word is his effective weapon. In the shadow of his hand, he, God, hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. I think the metaphor here is getting at that this person will be used for God's purposes. Verse 3. And God said to me, quote, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now this person, the servant of the Lord, is called by the name Israel. But as we're going to see in a, in a few verses, this is not the nation of Israel that he's referring to here. As one commentator put it, I like this. He said, quote, This person is the only one worthy of the name Israel. And he goes on to say that, quote, With the name came responsibility for the Abrahamic promises of world blessing. In other words, by this person bearing the name of Israel, he's bearing the responsibility to fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham. What was Israel originally supposed to do? What was the promise that God made to Abraham? Genesis chapter 12, listen, God said this to Abraham. He said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whom who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, listen to this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. The promise to Abraham was a promise for the entire world to be blessed through who? Through Israel, through the offspring of Abraham. Continuing on in verse 4 in Isaiah 49, the servant says, quote, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. In other words, the servant's going to toil here. Yet surely my right is with Yahweh and my recompense with my God. And in the next couple of verses, we're going to see that this person has two jobs. One job is to restore Israel or the Jews to God. Let's look at verse 5. And now Yahweh says, He who formed me from the womb is to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So restoring the Jews, restoring Israel, restoring Jacob. Continuing on, For I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. Even in the midst of hardship, God enables this person. He sustains this person. And then in verse 6, it says a second job. He says, quote, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. He's going to do that. But also says, quote, I will make you as a light for the nations, that is to non-Jews, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So in addition to reaching the Jews, the second job this person will have will to be a light for the world, to bring salvation to the world. And then verse 7 Ends this passage, says, Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. The servant of the Lord will be lowly and despised here, God says. Continues on, quote, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And so the same servant of the Lord who is deeply despised and abhorred by the nations, he will be someone that the that the kings and the rulers and the princes prostrate themselves before. He'll be glorified. He'll be honored. So my question for you is, who is this person? Who is the light of the nations that Isaiah is talking about here? Who is the one who brings salvation to the ends of the earth? Who is this servant of the Lord? Hundreds of years after this prophecy in Jerusalem, there was a devout man named Simon, who Luke says, quote, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And it had been revealed to this man that before he died, he would have a chance to see with his eyes the Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel. And surely enough, one day a young couple walked into the temple named Mary and Joseph, and they brought with them a little baby boy to Simon. And when he saw the baby, he picked up the baby, whose name was Jesus, and he said this, look, listen, this, this is a, these are the words of Simon. He said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simon realized that this baby, this baby boy that he was holding in his hands, that this one was the chosen one. This was the servant of the Lord prophesied by Isaiah. This is the one who would restore the Jews to God. This is the one who would be the light to the Gentiles. What do you think this baby's parents' response were? How did Mary and Joseph respond to that? Luke says that they marveled, as they should, as you should hearing that today. And look at this baby boy, this, this boy who grew up to be a man, who grew up to be a carpenter just like his father. This man, it was said, was the light of the world. The light 
of the world. Is that what Jesus believed about himself? Apparently so. It says in John 8, 12, that Jesus said, quote, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How can we know that this person was right? How can we know Jesus was telling the truth? Well, for one, he preached with authority. Right? He announced the good news of the kingdom of God of salvation to the poor. He gave sight to the blind. He made lame people walk. He made the deaf hear. He made demons tremble in fear. He gave all the signs that someone could possibly give of being from God. But not all were convinced. Even the prophecy in Isaiah says, quote, this is the servant talking, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Some interpreters think this is referring to Christ's suffering in this life. Or perhaps as one of them said, quote, his rejection, unbelief, prejudice, and misunderstanding that he faced. As John said in John 3.19, the light has come into the world and what? The people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In fact, this light was so opposed by the Jewish leaders in their ignorance that they had this man tortured, they had him beaten to a pulp through Roman flogging, and they had him unjustly executed, crucified on a Roman cross, and they laid his body in a tomb this supposedly servant of the Lord. But three days later, this man who claimed to be the light rose from the darkness of death and all of his supposedly blasphemous claims to be the Messiah, to be the Son of Man, to be the Son of God are suddenly vindicated and validated by the same God that they thought they were honoring in putting him to death. The stone was rolled away and the body was gone. And after appearing to many different people, the eyewitnesses say that they saw this man ascend to the right hand of God. They saw him ascend into heaven. This same servant, who was so deeply despised and abhorred that he was crucified as a criminal, was then glorified at the right hand of God. And now the scriptures say that he will come again. And that one day every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Like Paul later says to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he said, The scriptures prophesy, quote, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This resurrected Savior is the light, he is the salvation that is announced to Jews and to Gentiles. You know, one of the amazing things about the light, this is true of physical light as well, is that light always dispels the darkness. Light always conquers the darkness. Think about this for a second. Have you ever seen darkness overcome light? Maybe when you get home late at night and you walk into your house and all the lights are off and you're stumbling on stuff, there's toys on the ground, that are stabbing your feet as you're walking in. Maybe you run into some furniture on the way. You can't see. You're totally helpless in the dark until what? Until you turn on the light. Have you ever flipped the light switch, but the darkness has been so powerful that it overpowered the light? Of course not. Right? You turn on the light, and now you can see. It saves you from the darkness. There is no such thing as darkness which triumphs over the light. 
And see, the Bible says that every single one of us is trapped in the dark, that we're trapped in a pitch black house. We're all blind, just like the Jews were. Before Christ intervened, we were all enslaved to our dark, sinful desires. We were trapped in them. The Bible says that we were ignorant of the truth, that we were living in the dark. And not only that, but that darkness was our destiny. That we were doomed to destruction, what the Bible calls eternal darkness. That that was what we justly deserved for our life of darkness and sin, eternal darkness. But piercing through that darkest night is the light of Christ. He saves us from this pitch black house of slavery to sin, of blindness to the truth, and from our destiny of eternal darkness and hell. How did he do that? By literally putting darkness to death. He killed the darkness. The light conquers the darkness. See, when Jesus was on the cross, he united us to himself so that all of our darkness, our dark hearts, our dark beliefs, die with him. The darkness dies with him. And when Jesus was buried, he buried the darkness with him in the tomb. And then all of the darkness that we deserve forever for our sin, Jesus cast away at the cross. He dispelled on the cross. Isaiah 53 says that this servant of the Lord would be crushed for our iniquities, that he would take the utter darkness that we deserve on himself. And he literally suffered in the dark on the cross. But more importantly, he spiritually suffered in the dark on the cross so that we would not have to, so that we could be saved from the darkness. And then on that third day, on that glorious day, the sun rose. Sun, S-O-N, Son of God rose. It was the ultimate triumph of the light. The light broke through. Imagine this, this historical fact, this historical event. There is Jesus' body, his dead body. And then all of a sudden, he breathes again. His eyes open again. He stands up again. And the tomb, which was sealed with a massive stone, is rolled away, and he walks out of the tomb. The light conquers the darkness, even the darkness of death. And the glorious news for us, brothers and sisters, that all who are in Christ are raised to life with him. Just as we are united in his death and our darkness dies with Christ, when Jesus is raised from the dead, all of us are raised up with him, raised up as children of light, as people with hearts of light like his, as new houses that aren't pitch dark, but are filled with light, people with hearts that believe the truth, that know the truth, that actually love him, raised to walk as children of light now and forever in his kingdom of light. He is the light of the world. He's the light of the world in the greatest sense that someone could be the light. He saves us from the darkness, from our deepest darkness. I hope that you see the light this morning. I hope that if you're still in the darkness, or perhaps even if you're not, if you're not a Jew, I want you to hear that this salvation of the Jewish Messiah is for you nonetheless. You are not first in line, but you can rejoice today because that light has come to you too. This Jesus, this, sa- this servant of the Lord, this promised Savior of Israel, this one through whom the Abrahamic promise would be fulfilled that all the nations would be blessed, this one has come to us this morning. The light has come even here to us today. 
He is the one who is worthy of the name Israel, as the commentator said. And he is shining here this morning. Verse 48 gives us the Gentiles' response to this. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They had experienced the light. The same light you just heard, they experienced and they heard. Salvation came to them and they loved it. They rejoiced. It's the only reasonable response to this message. If you're, if you're sane and you're hearing what I'm saying and you recognize that it is true, rejoicing is the right response. And it says that they glorified the word. That is, they saw the word as glorious. They proclaimed the word as glorious. They acted as if the word was glorious. They revered it as properly glorious. What a glorious word it is indeed that the light has come. The angels, as we heard earlier when they announced the birth of our Savior, the Lord in the city of David, they said it was what? Quote, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For all the people. And as Charles Wesley wrote in the song that we just sang earlier today, Jesus is the heavenly Prince of Peace. He is the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. It's my prayer that you have a chance to, to feel that warmth of the light of Christ. To possibly feel it even today for the first time. Or maybe if you've experienced in the past, maybe you've, been, maybe you've been inside for too long, spiritually inside the office for too long. It's time to step outside and to enjoy the light of Christ, to feel the warmth of the light of Christ again, the rays of the Son of Righteousness, to rejoice in him again. That response should be the response we always have to this news of the light coming and the light shining. How can you not love him? How can you see him like this and not follow after him the same way that the Jews and the Gentile converts follow after Paul and Barnabas? How can you not want more of him? I think that all who truly experience Jesus do want him more. And if that's not you, then I can tell you that you've never truly experienced Jesus. And maybe today, maybe you're realizing that for the first time in your life, you've been in darkness all your life. Maybe you're realizing that you've never tasted the light before, that you're still enslaved to those dark desires, that you're still living in a pitch black house. You have yet to receive the forgiveness Christ offers. And the good news for you is the same news that it was for the Gentiles and that you can experience the light today. Don't grope around the house looking for the light switch. Good works is not the switch. Being religious is not the switch. Believing the right things is not the switch. You will not receive the light of salvation by any of those. And I can guarantee you if you try those things, you will be groping around in the darkness forever. The light switch is right here. It's repentance and trust. Repentance and trust, confessing your life of darkness before God, turning away from the darkness, and trusting alone in Jesus as the light. Trusting him as the light who can save you from your darkness now and forever. That's the light switch. And for all who flip that switch, the light of Christ will shine freely in your life and it will shine brightly. It will conquer the pitch black darkness of even the darkest heart. So powerful is the light of Christ. Why is it, though, that some who hear of this light of salvation and who even hear of the switch of repentance and faith, why is it that some people flip that switch and receive the light when others hear of it and do not? 
Why do the Gentiles rejoice at this message of salvation, but the Jews fiercely opposed it? Was it because the Gentiles were more moral people? Were they smarter than the Jews? Were they, did they come from a better religious upbringing? Were they just lucky? Were they the lucky ones? The passage says it was none of those things. Look at verse 48, the end of verse 48. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The uh, analogy I gave of the dark house is, uh, like most analogies, it's inadequate. You would have to, have to modify it if you want it to be more theologically accurate. The analogy would be more like this. If the pitch black house is our dark hearts, perhaps eventually we could grope around until we eventually find the light switch. But see, the Bible says that our hearts are actually so dark that there are no lights and no light switches at all. That we do not even have the capacity to repent and trust in Christ. Our hearts are so desperately dark. Why don't we have the ability to turn to him? Because as John said, we loved the darkness rather than the light. We are so dark and so blind that we will always choose the darkness unless God intervenes. Unless God says, let there be light in Kirk's heart or in Tim's heart or in Steve's heart. Unless God says that just like he did at creation, we will remain in darkness forever. He must come into our house, he must install the light switch, and then he must cause us to flip it. Otherwise, we would never escape the darkness. He must cause you to repent and believe. And that is why the passage says that it is those who, quote, were appointed, those who were elected, chosen by God, before God made anything in the world, he chose people to lavish his grace upon. It is his gracious choosing his appointing of them, that is the only reason that the Gentiles turned from their sin, from their darkness, and trusted in Christ. It's the only reason they did not remain in darkness forever. And that is why, brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ, the glory is to God alone. The only reason you did that is because God was gracious with you in bringing you to himself. All the glory is his. Now, if you read this passage carefully, you might be rightly bothered with me right now because you'll notice that I actually missed something huge up in verse 47. If you didn't notice that, we're going to look at it now. I promise I didn't miss it, at least on purpose. Verse 47, if you go back, Paul and Barnabas said, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Did you catch that? You can read it, read it a second time. Paul and Barnabas are saying that God commanded them, quote, I have made you, Paul and Barnabas, a light for the nations, that you, Paul and Barnabas, may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See, that's amazing here. I, I, don't, want, I don't want us to miss this. Isaiah, when he was prophesying this, back in Isaiah 49, he was referring to the servant of the Lord to the coming Messiah, to the person that Simeon rightly recognized was Jesus. But here what Paul is saying is that this calling applies to him and to Barnabas too. This is amazing. It's, he's saying that if you're a Christian, you're not just someone who loves the light, but you're actually someone who shines the light. You don't just love it, you shine it yourself. 
Listen to the words of the, of the servant of the Lord himself, of the light to the nations. This is what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you heard it read earlier. Jesus himself said, you, speaking to his followers, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But instead they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why would they give glory to God? Because God is the ultimate source of that light that they have. He's the basis for that light. He's like the sun is for our physical light. He is the ultimate source. He is the basis of all the goodness, of all the truth, and of the salvation that ought to shine through each and every one of you. We are to shine the light of Christ to the world. You know, sometimes people don't think of cities as beautiful places, but there is something, I think, undeniably beautiful about a city skyline in the night. Now imagine a city that's positioned on the top of a hill, and at nighttime, the lights are shining, and it's casting light all around the neighboring cities below. We are to be a city on a hill just like that. We're to be a light shining in the darkness. We're lanterns, Jesus said, in the dark. Jesus is the flame. He's a bright flame. And we're lanterns shining the light to the world. We are the body of Christ. Jesus is the light for the Gentiles. And Paul says, so are Barnabas, so am I, and so are you. The servant of the Lord shines through us. We are the servant of the Lord's body. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this salvation of the Messiah goes, what as Acts 1.8 says, to the ends of the earth. We're to bring the salvation to the ends of the earth. Who are we to shine to? That verse pretty much answers the question, right? It's to all nations. Why? Because this has been God's mission from the beginning. So like I said earlier, the Jewish rejection, it was only the occasion for directly engaging the nations. It was not the reason. The reason is that God has a heart for the nations. He has a heart for the world in darkness. We know the Bible says if we don't shine, if we don't shine, how will the world ever escape the dark? See, as we see here, the Gentiles, they they believed. They stepped into the light because they heard the message of light. And Paul himself says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. They must hear. So the application point for us is is very simple. Who are you shining the light to? Who are you shining the light to right now in your life? It should not be hard to think of someone that in our actions and in our words, it has to be our words too. Remember, faith comes from hearing, not by seeing. Faith comes from hearing. We have, to, we have to share this message of light with people. It shouldn't be hard to think of a single person. But if you can't think of someone, that's a big problem. It means that either you've never experienced the light yourself, either you don't have the light in your life, which is a terrifying thought, or that you're hiding that light under a bowl, just like Jesus told us not to. Both of those are horrible situations to be in, to either not have the light or to have it, but to hide it. The world needs the light. If you're saved, someone, a Paul and Barnabas in your life, shine the light to you. And if you have truly experienced that light, and if you actually love the world in darkness, your family members, your friends, your colleagues, neighbors who don't know Christ, who are living in darkness, then you will want them to have that light too. You will want them to have it. You will be a city on a hill for them. 
You will bring them this salvation from the darkness. And Christians shine the light. Christians shine the light. And we see in this passage that this this seems to be exactly what the Christians did. Verse 49, it says, The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. These Christians, they're, they're shining the light to others, and they're lighting the whole place up. Man, I would so love to see that happen here. I would love for this this whole region, this dark valley, Silicon Valley, to be lit up with the gospel, for the word to spread throughout this entire region as it did there. And verse 50 says that the Jews, inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. We shouldn't be surprised. We see the blind-eyed monster of ignorance and possibly the green-eyed monster of jealousy continuing to rear their ugly heads. Perhaps as the Jews see the light spreading more and more, they respond with even more intense persecution. And so they drive Paul and Barnabas out. But at this point, it's too late, right? Because now all those who love the light are shining it too. It's too late for them. The darkness could not overcome the light. Just as the darkness of the world could not overcome the light of Christ, so too today can the darkness of the world not overcome the light of Christ that shines through the church. The light will prevail Verse 51 says that Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. So they followed the pattern that Jesus gave to the 72, right, from Luke chapter 10. Not even the dust of their feet from that city they want on their feet. Now they're not condemning everyone there, they're just condemning the Jews who rejected the gospel and they move on to the next city. And verse 52 says that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Can you put a happily ever after on the end of that story? I think that's probably the best, best line that you could give to close off that narrative. That, that's a good line for us. And Paul and Barnabas, they move on to the next city to what? To shine the light there, to preach again, to bring the light, to bring the salvation to Jews and Gentiles in the next city, in the next stop. And as Christians, we have the exact same command that Paul and Barnabas did, to shine the light of Christ to the world in darkness. Paul said in Ephesians 5, He said, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So Christians have a peculiar relationship to the light, capital L, light. Whereas non-Christians oppose the light in the darkness, Christians are capital L, light lovers and light shiners. Is that you? Does that describe you? If not, then step into the light of Christ this morning. And if so, then rejoice that God has appointed you. Bask in the amazing light that is Jesus. Just stand there and see him. He is amazing. Love him. Want more of him. And shine him to the world. Let's pray that God would do just that for us. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world and you shine through your church. We're so thankful, Lord, that someone in our lives shined the light to us, that you were pleased by your Holy Spirit to bring the light to the nations, to non-Jews, people just like us, so that we could be saved from the darkness now and forever. We pray, Lord, that for any who are in here right now who have yet to experience your light truly, we pray that you would do so this morning. 
And Lord, for all those who have experienced your light and have experienced it again today in the proclamation of this message, cause us to rightly rejoice and to want more of you, to hunger for you. Cause us to seek after you in our hunger for you. And by your grace, Lord, help us to shine this light to all of those that you've put in our lives who are still living in the dark. We pray, Lord, that you would save them from their darkness and that you would bring this salvation, this light to them just as you have brought it to us. Use us to accomplish that. Make us the light of the world that you have called us to be. Help us to be like Paul and Barnabas were and like the other Christians were who believed in Antioch and Pisidia. Help us to spread the word throughout this entire region and be pleased to draw many people to yourself and to cover this area in the kingdom of light. Pray that you would do this for your own glory. In your name's sake, amen.